Welcome, welcome, welcome. You could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with we. My name is EJ, and I got my man. MH. Yes, he's the DB of the show, and we are Black in Sports, giving a voice to the culture that won't shut up and dribble. Here interviewing the best professionals in the game and in the boardroom, uh, laughing at all, covering all while providing a platform to be heard. And that's right, we are providing the platform. So you know what we do about this time. We got to bring in our illustrious guest. Excited to have him. So representing H-Town, all right? So ex-Googler, you know, ex-Snapchat, former chief diversity off and inclusion officer for Nike, and, you know, just a little uh, uh, adjunct professor at Brown University, you know, just dropping some knowledge on the youth, man, to the youth of our future. Uh, 30 under 30, and then why not backdoor with some 40 under 40 in, in, uh, and, um, oh, why am I going to blank? In Portland, okay? Um, but now, man, we're really excited once we get to the platform talking about how he's continuing to evolve and change the world. We're going to talk about the new inventor. He's the CEO and founder of the Rainbow Disruptor. Please, please, please clap it up for Jarvis. Sand. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Hey, Jarvis, thank you so much, man, for making time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, we just really, really appreciate that. And uh, how we start the show is with a shoot your shot. We put you right right in the game with a shoot your shot moment, all right? So I hope you're ready for it, but I know you can adapt and adjust. So a shoot your shot moment, it could be anywhere, anytime in life, right? And just with the what you've done in your career, I'm pretty sure you've shot your shot a lot, right? So just give us a time. It could have been um, high school days, career days. It could have been in any aspect, but a shoot your shot moment. Go. Yeah, EJ, MH, thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be joining this incredible conversation today. You guys are certainly leading the charge with amazing narrative work and really telling our stories in a way that's so critical and so powerful. So thank you so much for having me. You know, I have certainly shot my shot a number of times throughout life. I am definitely not one that's uh, that's shy, as you can probably tell by my demeanor. And if not that by my hair, uh, subtlety is not my strong suit. So <laughs> I've shot my shot. Uh, a number of different occasions. You know, I think the one that really stands out and matters the most to me, you know, was actually part of my first entry into the working space and career. So I actually started my career working for Deloitte as a strategy and operations consultant. And it was a big moment of your shot. You know, I studied in the humanities for college. I was in history, public policy, and sport management. And, you know, Deloitte was doing interviews for interns, and they were mostly going after folks that were in heavy STEM education, some of the folks that were studying more business fields. But for me, I knew that the skills that come with working in the humanities, the core skills around communication, effective collaboration and teamwork help to provide the baseline for how we do great strategy work. All of the other technical and fundamental yeah. principles, we can be taught and we can learn those along the way. But to really thrive in the workplace, you got to bring those deeply interpersonal and intercultural skills to the table to make a difference. And so I shot my shot. I showed up at the uh, Career Center at Rice. And, you know, I'm sitting there surrounded by a number of my colleagues and classmates. Of course, they're like, aren't you going to law school? I'm like, you know what? I might do that, too. But for now, I want this internship. And, you know, I shot my shot strong. I, I studied up on how to interview for case interviews, how to do the behavioral interview well. And I walked in the room and made it super clear to the partners and senior managers that interviewed me that we need to think differently about who and how we hire and diversify mm. the profile of people. Uh, and I have mm. to say, it 
sparked and, and elevated my career in a way that I never knew before. And so I'm a huge fan of Deloitte as a brand. I love my time there as both an analyst, moving into consultant and as an intern. And mm -hmm. I'm proud to say, you know, I just joined my Deloitte fam again just last week uh, at Deloitte University for their annual Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Forum, where they bring in uh, nearly 200 CDIOs uh, for three days of learning and education. And so I attended last year as a CDIO during my time at Nike. Uh, and this year as one of the keynote panelists. Let's go. That's unbelievable. No the shot right there. Yeah, it is. That's dope. Josh, where did uh, love for sports, where, where did that start? You know, my love for sport goes way back to my, my youth days. You know, I played fifth grade basketball, not super well, but I love the fact that I could receive a participation trophy. And so for <laughs> me, that was, that was enough. I was definitely on the B team. I'm not going to even see her and lie to y'all. Uh, but I found that that the right side corner three point jumper like that was my shot. There it and is. So, and so it, it worked. It worked, and, and that was my vibe. DJ Tucker. <laughs> and that was my big foray into sport. But I'll tell you, by the time I got to middle school, I actually found my love for volleyball as a sport. And so I worked as a manager and as a player uh, throughout middle school and high school, and eventually took that on into college and and life. And so I have played volleyball on different competitive circuits for, my goodness, probably about 15 years now, uh, both wow. beach and indoor. And then I think on, you know, an even deeper level, I realized very early on the power of sport to have impact on people's lives. I yeah. will never forget being in my eighth grade uh, American history class. It was an amazing woman named uh, Claudia Miller. She was, she was down for the cause. And I love Miss Miller. Miss Miller uh, helped inspire in me. I was in a class where I was the only black student in the pre-AP program and pre-AP classes uh, at the middle school that I went to. And Miss Miller pushed me hard and heavy because, you know, she was teaching me that survival in the space of education and academia would not be easy. And this would not be the only time that you exist in those spaces. And it's how you give back and reach out to others that make a difference. But one of the images that Miss Miller showed me was from the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, where uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos proudly raised their fist in support of, of black rights and advocacy uh, in the civil rights movement America. And that photo has always stood out for me because it was unpopular. They faced a ton of resistance, as we know, as we look at the historical record. But it started to highlight to me that when you have a platform of and for sports, it can truly have great impact. Of course, I later saw the, the quote that I live and breathe by and why I do this work. Uh, May 25th, 2000, Nelson Mandela at the World Laureates Forum saying sport has the power to change the world, specifically for children. It speaks in a language to which they understand. That is so powerful. And that's why I chose sport as my platform to do the work in DEI. That's fantastic. That's man. interesting. Like so, like the game of volleyball is, is diverse and is set up anyway, right? When it comes yep. to just kind of roles and responsibilities. So, I guess what drew you to the game itself as like, yeah, this is one I want to stick with. <laughs> you know, I love volleyball, and uh, a lot of professional players probably gonna be real offended by this. But for me, <laughs> volleyball is, is is somewhat like Quidditch. Like, if you are somewhat agile at other sports and not really great at them, though, and you hone your skills in volleyball. You could be really good. So, like, I could jump. That was no problem. I was, I, I could run. I could handle the court really well. And so all of those different elements played out in my ability to be a competitive player. You know, for many years, 
I played as Libero, which that's the person mm-hmm. that gets in the back, takes the first hit. Got um, a different jersey, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I played that for many years. And then uh, most of the teams that I played as part of, they quickly realized, like, you know, we can jump, like, a lot. And so I could jump higher okay. than a lot of my teammates who were much taller than me. And so I started playing outside hitter uh, for a number of years as well. And for me, it was just, it's, it's the ultimate team sport. You know, it's why you see it at family reunions. And, like, I don't really do family volleyball because I'm much more competitive than that. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's why you see it at team offsites at family reunions because it is a sport that's somewhat of a great unifier for people. Uh, why it really stood out to me is I love the sport, and yet I never saw myself represented in the sport. I never mm. saw a lot of men playing, particularly in Texas. When I got out to the West Coast, I saw the amazing guys that play at UCLA, at USC, at University of Hawaii. Uh, but but even on those teams, I rarely saw black men playing. Right. And then I started to see a couple of amazing brothers playing uh, at University of Hawaii when I went there for my sophomore year of college. And that really inspired me to say, this is a sport that is so fun, it's incredible, and yet continues to lack representation in many ways. I had one black guy that played on our college volleyball team as well. So it's, yep. it, we, we ain't out there. Yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. we need to break in there and take over. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, there are some sports that there are these barriers to entry and engagement for us in so many ways. Volleyball is one of them. Tennis is another. Golf is another. But when we actually can be let in and when the, the barriers to access are broken down, look at how we dominate. Serena, Venus. Tiger, the list continues. Sloan, Stevens, there's so many amazing people out there that when we have the opportunity to play and maximize our ability and potential, the mm-hmm. sky's the limit. Yeah, that's definitely one of them. Uh, I mean, lacrosse, we had a lacrosse player on, man. Yeah. A lacrosse player, then, you know, yep. they're starting this, but that's one of those, like you said, barrier to entry. Like, I didn't even know what lacrosse was until I got into college, right? Like, yep. so, you know, that's a whole different sport. All right, well, so and, you know, oh. I, I, I would be remiss to not pass up this one. You know, lacrosse is an interesting one for me because lacrosse is a sport that has in many ways been culturally appropriated and, and misappropriated. Uh, lacrosse is a sport created and invented by Native and Indigenous populations. And right. yet when you think about and, you know, I, I'm very proud of some of the work that we did at Nike to support the Haudenosaunee national team uh, and some of their work to be competitive in their global participation in the sport. Wow. But when we think about lacrosse, the, if you were to ask the average person to identify of a lineup of people who the lacrosse player is, they probably would pick the teenage, uh, thin, cisgendered white male as the person who plays lacrosse. When the reality is it's because barriers to entry have been set up around exposure, engagement, the, the financial barrier to entry that now makes it perceived as a sport that only some communities can take advantage of when the reality is it was an underrepresented community and of populations that have been here for decades and whose lands with which we occupy that are the founding leaders of that sport. Mm. That's we, deep. That. we definitely covered some of that, right? Cause like that yeah. was, you know, as we do the research for our show, that was one of the things when we had, you know, this young up and coming lacrosse player, we wish him um, definitely much to say, Yusef, but um, it was created by us. Right. And then like one of the best players was, you know, rest in peace, you know, Jim Brown, right. Like that, that people just don't recognize or think about when you think about the traditional sport, man. So it's one of those things where it was, you know, and worth lack of a better thing. It was gentrified, right. It was taken from us and then, you know, created those barriers of entry. So, all right, man, 
got we can't get too far without re- like letting them know we said it in the intro you are houston representative all right so born <laughs> born in the h and it's funny because you know when we get the uh people that are from houston on the show we're starting to see more and more of the culture represented some of the things like you know track is one of the things and just how's that city you know because you think though detroit versus everybody right and florida boys and football how was it growing up in houston man what are some of the things that you know make you proud of being a houstonian i mean Debbie Allen, Felicia <laughs> Rashad, Megan the Stallion, <laughs> Beyonce. Like, uh, I, I, we're good. We win there. You, okay. know? you said that's I, just a start. That's I, just a start. <laughs> I'm very hometown proud because I think Houston is such a city that it is such a bastion of rich diversity. And primarily because of the oil and gas industry and the healthcare industries, you have so many cultures that are represented there. You see that culture represented through food, music, language, uh, economic spaces and environments, different industries and sectors represented. Uh, Not to mention our our, our food is everything. I will not argue with these folks from Carolina or Kansas City. We have the barbecue on lock. Not to be shy. You heard it there. (laughs) I just want you to know you offended about uh, 30% of our listeners. Oh, listen, listen. They can argue with me on this, but I think we already know. Oh, we already there it know. Is. <laughs> and you know, Houston is just a place you you got these signature events that exist nowhere else in the world. Uh, every Houstonian knows what HLSR is, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. It's one of the world's largest indoor rodeo and livestock displays. Houston inspires people because you have this rich mix of things that kind of seem like a dichotomy. But where in February and March, you got the rodeo happening. We obviously have a ton of sports representation with the Rockets, the Astros, the Texans, the Dynamo, not to mention our collegiate sports teams. I'm a proud alum of Rice University. Uh, You got our teams at Texas Southern, Prairie View, U of H, HBU. Like, it is just such an incredible city. Like, it, it is the fourth largest city in America, but the culture runs through us, the power and the passion uh, of our commitment to excellence runs through us. Uh, and it's why so many people from so many other cities hate on us. <laughs> there you go. I, hey, just you hate on, I just hate on the highways in Houston. That's that's my number one hate. All the, all the twists. Hey, the beltway this and the loop that. And... Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Listen, <laughs> in, in, in Houston, you got to be ready and prepared. Because uh, <laughs> it's, it's a sprawling city. It's going to take you 45 minutes to get anywhere, bare minimum. And uh, don't try to go southeast to northwest because you're looking at about 90. <laughs> so, so the so the Houston teams, that's all that's that's your squads. You don't you don't differ from the Houston squads? You know, I do. I do. I lived in LA for uh for a good while. And so like I love the Lakers, hands down. Um you know, in, in other sports, uh baseball, I've been a couple of Blue Jays games up in Toronto, so I love their sports work. I have the great opportunity to work with a couple of the leaders of various Toronto sports teams. So Huge Raptor fan. I love the work that uh, Masai Ujiri, their president, has done to not only diversify the team, but the league, but also his work uh, in support of Giants of Africa as a sports platform. So, you know, I try to give love to people and in spaces where, you know, I see good work happening. Because for me, it is not just about the the progress and impact of the team. It's what do you do with that? How do your players show up to support people uh, in mm-hmm. different spaces and organizations? So it, it's more holistic for me. And I'm, th- I'm seeing like more and more like, you know, our generation and younger are like finding teams with they have a relationship, right, a connection to, you know, we're no longer just only liking 
the team that we grew up in because like we have the internet, right? Like, you know, our parents didn't have the internet where they could only see, you know, that's why, you know, unfortunately miles is. Yeah. Close your ears, pops. Yeah. Close your ears. I'm not siding with EJ on this. That's that's why MH is a cowboy fan because Cowboys was always on TV when he was growing up, you know, so he didn't have a chance. And it's America's team. Ain't just because they on TV. Here we go. (laughs) And you proud of that? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, DJ, as soon as you started that statement, you already knew where it was like, going, huh? The Cowboys are the only exception to that. The only exception. <laughs> it's it's, lo- it's lonely on top. Oh, <laughs> here we go. How many? You know, let's let's get yeah, back. Wait, let's not get into that. Get back. Yeah, get back. <laughs> so back focus on <laughs> how did you choose rice? Right, like you know, yes, there's because there's more than rice, right, in that yep. kind of area. You know that are yep. great universities, and you list a lot of them. So, how did Rice ended up um, being your selection? There were really three factors at play for me, to be honest with you, EJ. So, I, my, my siblings and I all did one very interesting thing. We we were in still very early. We were raised in a single parent household. Uh, my mother taught us very much so the value of education and the the perspective that like once you complete your education at any level, any institution, or any organization, that is one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And so we were absolutely instilled with that. And so one of the commonalities, actually, that me and all my siblings have, my brother, uh, he skipped seventh grade uh, and went from six to eight. And then my sister and I actually both skipped our senior year of high school. And so I graduated from high school out of my 11th grade year. And I knew that because I was relatively young, I wanted to stay somewhere in Texas. But I wanted uh, an academic education that was very uh, liberal arts focused, but that could propel me based off of whatever it would be that I would do next uh, into something really great. And so I had met a ton of professors at Rice in a couple of different departments, namely the sport management department and the history department. And I loved what they were talking about. I loved what they were putting down. They were professors who I saw doing incredible work in the classroom, but also trying to have a big impact on the broader world. And so that was really important to me. And then the third piece is I actually was a competitive speech and debate kid for many, many years. And so Rice had an incredible and hyper-competitive speech and debate team. And so I knew that I wanted to be a part of one of uh, the state of Texas's best teams. And so I I wanted to go to Rice for that purpose, too. Now, I saw that in one of your interviews or just uh, maybe somewhere. Could you speak a lot on those two components, right? Education being really big, but more importantly, the debate or the speaking or or what that has done for you and why you think it's important for like all of us, you know, no matter where you are in your career, but especially if you can do it young, should be a part of that kind of those kind of groups. Absolutely. I think that one of the biggest flaws of primarily public education systems these days, uh, particularly at the middle school and high school level, is that we position debate, speech, and communications classes as electives. And we put them on the same playing field as art or theater or music. And the reality is all of those should have some level of requirement in in coursework in classrooms because it teaches us the diversity or diversification that Mm -hmm. exists. Why do students take PE or athletics for so many different semesters and times and periods throughout their time and tenure in public education, when the reality is 
the beauty of learning to be an effective communicator in both written and verbal communication is that you are able to engage different groups, different communities, and different people on a variety of different perspectives. You overlay that with a strong approach to both cross-cultural and intercultural communication. You can navigate and survive the world even if you don't speak the same language as another person. And that for me has been a game-changing experience in how I've been able to lead in some of the big organizations that I've had the opportunity to work with. I think you just solved our problems just kind of like right there. No, to be 100, because, we're, you know, we live such in a world where you're on this side or you're that side. Are you yep. this way or are you this way? Like, yep. I, I guess the fundamentals of that, I've never even thought about it until you, you, you said that. I guess where did that part come from from you? Like, where did that foundation piece come from? You know, I've always been an avid reader and have loved media. And mm -hmm. one of the big issues that I've noticed in both literature and media is that we don't talk enough about cross-cultural engagement. I'll tell you, one of the areas where I'm doing a lot of research on these days and that has been a very important point for me is understanding how this concept of solidarity has been intentionally, uh, enforceably, removed and erased from our experiences. For example, I, I, growing up in Texas, uh, we knew Juneteenth and you celebrated Juneteenth before you had any idea what this so-called American Independence Day of July the 4th was. <laughs> That's how you operate in Texas. And I am thrilled that now uh, under the Biden administration that we now see Juneteenth represented as a national and federal holiday. Here's the challenge. Our stories are often told in so many silos in that it leads to levels of erasure and forces us to not consider the level of solidarity that could impact how underrepresented communities uh, could impact each other over time. For example, Juneteenth marks the moment where on June 19, 1865, General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas to highlight two and a half years later to enslaved individuals in that region that the Emancipation Proclamation had come down on January 1st, 1863. We are told these stories, though, in silos of this experience that these Black enslaved folks found out they were free. Now they went in pursuit of emancipation and freedom and lived their lives. Texas was a part of Mexico for years prior to the state of Texas or then being positioned as its own independent country prior to annexation by the United States. That means there were large populations of Chicano-identified or uh, Mexican-Americans that were living in Texas during that same period. Why are we not informed about the story of how did they receive the impact of Black emancipation during that time and period? What role did they play in the success of reintegration into the reality of what American life and lifestyles looked like at that point? And right. what's more, with the amount of migration that's happened back and forth between the state of Oklahoma, the neighbor to the north, and the state of Texas, there was obviously representation of indigenous populations there as well. We are forcibly not told these stories because if you can erase the history of the solidarity of underrepresented populations, you we don't have a framework for how to do that in modern times. Mm -hmm. And it's why you don't see the amount of connectivity that should exist between Black and Latino communities, for example, to form a block that can actually advance the policies and practices that we want to achieve. And so mm -hmm. my, my point there is that cross-cultural communication helps to break down these barriers by transcending culture through the lens of empathy, respect, and human connection. Mm. <laughs> I love right. it. I love it.
Deep. So what, 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 yeah, that is, what did you, uh, you study at Rice and how did, did that change in your, in your process or, you know, cause you went in as a, basically a junior in high school or a senior in high school. So how did that process change? And I think with the three dynamics of them that you chose, right? Like how does sports policy and history <laughs> come together to say, this is what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> they don't, to be honest with you. <laughs> Uh, or at least I didn't think they would. Like, th this is the wildest part about my experience is I studied history because teachers have had such a powerful impact on my life forever. You know, I can think of a ton of history teachers, as I mentioned, Miss Miller, uh, Andy Dewey, Charlie Swinson from my time in high school, who played such a big role in helping me find love for the field. Because what they taught me is that textbooks say one thing. Primary source data say another. There is a reality of the actual historical record. They taught me to challenge not only knowing and understanding history, but to focus on this concept of historicity, which is how processes of history come to be. It's the process of learning and studying history. And what historicity will inform you about is where and how erasure happens and the intentional nature of erasure. And so I knew that history had to be something that I studied and explored. And so I did a ton of work in uh, Hawaiian history. I actually lived um, in, in Honolulu for my sophomore year doing some research work in that space. Uh, I studied a ton in Chinese history and, and the reign of Deng Xiaoping. Uh, and, and what that meant in terms of both academic and professional networks. Uh, did a ton of work and study in, in various parts of European history. Uh, studied a ton around Holocaust history and the impact, for example, of the rat lines that were created to get Nazis from Germany to Argentina during World War II. And so all of these different areas of knowledge helped to equip me with understanding, one, how different we are as, as people and experiences, but how similar we are in several ways mm -hmm. and it gave credence to this age-old adage that history repeats itself if unchecked uh, by knowledge and intervention. Mm -hmm. So that was that piece. I wanted to apply it in some way. And so that's where policy studies came about. Okay. I wanted to understand through the lens of law and justice, how do Supreme Court cases like Plessy versus Ferguson, Loving versus Virginia Brown versus Board of Education help to establish our way of thinking about human rights and equal protection under the law. And so I did just that. I studied a lot around uh, the law and gender, the law and race, the law and sexual orientation and identity, and how it is either redefined how we think about those spaces or presents us an opportunity to think about where we grow and build for the future. Last but not least, I wanted to figure out an industry that allowed this to be applied in the best of ways. Hmm. I told you guys before, I had discovered the age-old Mandela quote from May 2015, And my perspective was, if sport really does have the power to change the world, let me understand how these elements of history and public policies play out in the sports industry, both through the lens of the athlete, the league or federation, the consumer, and the events and partnership space that surrounds this multi-trillion dollar industry uh, to prove success. Damn. That's good stuff, man. And like you it said, was, I didn't have that at the time. You didn't have it right. right. I did not have that narrative. So I'm not about to sit here and lie to you and say, like, a junior in college, me was like, this sounds dope. I was more like, I got some time left and I need to do this. To get. <laughs> Let me do this. And you, you dropped a word on us. I'm going to have to say that a couple. Historistory? What was that? What yeah. yeah. H historicity. Yeah. I, that was a new one for me. That's I a new just, one. We, 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 
we learned something new today, right? So learned something new. <laughs> love it. All right, man. So want to jump into we call this part, you know, just kind of in the game or you know, part of your career stuff. Don't want to glaze by stuff. So I want to really maybe highlight a lot of the, the things you've done because you've done some amazing things. Uh, but of course, we want to get into the, the platform where we talk about what you're doing now. But the two things that I want to highlight, right? And I don't want to skip over Snapchat because if there's something that you want to share for, uh, with Snap, excuse me, or something you want to share with Google, but I want to get right to Nike, all right? And only reason I want to get to Nike is because of two things that like Nike have, has done and you alluded to one of them early, right? So um, love what Masai is doing up there. Had a chance to, to meet him and, um, you know, one of their assistant GMs up there. Um, but the the Giants, uh, what is it called? I uh, wrote it down. Giants, Giants of Africa. Yo. That's amazing. And like, I know he's been doing that with the Africa, you know, ball that, you know, uh, President Obama is a, well, excuse me, our president, Obama, uh, has kind of helped and been an ambassador to. What is that program doing and why does he have it in Toronto? That's what was a surprising thing for me. I didn't know that he was hosting it in Toronto. Yeah, you know, I love Giants of Africa. I've had the opportunity to participate with them uh, for about three years running now. And what Giants of Africa is committed to doing is advancing the power of sport. It's rooted in uh, Madiba or, or Nelson Mandela's sentiment around the impact of sport. Uh, Masai has just such a beautifully emotional connection and, and impact tied to Mandela and Mandela's sentiments and his focus uh, as a leader. And, and, you know, I've been so inspired by Mandela's work as well. You know, when you see a leader who demonstrated resilience and patience, uh, to ensure both advocacy and activism, mm -hmm. there's something so, so inspiring about that. And so given, you know, Africa is the past, Africa is doing great work in the present, and Africa represents the future. And the dynamics and dimensions of what that continent is, it is critical that we position it as not a monolith. When people talk about experiences connected to the region, it is critical, and I highlight this, we have to understand the rich diversity, not only of landscape and environment, but politics, social, economic, religion, culture that is embodied on that beautiful continent to which we dub as the motherland. And so Giants of Africa seeks to leverage the power of sport to engage with youth populations in the region and help mm -hmm. them to understand what leadership, collaboration, communication, development can actually look like. And so I've had the opportunity to support Messiah in this endeavor uh, for about three years now in, in Toronto. And, you know, I think that part of why it's tied to Toronto is, is obviously his connection and his work as the president of the Raptors. But also Toronto has a very interesting racial history as well. You know, while they their, their interaction and engagement with uh, periods of enslavement are very different than that of the United States, there is a rich cultural and multiplicity of diversity that exists in the city that I actually think makes it quite prime for that. I am so excited, though, because this is the 20th year of Giants of Africa. And so I am actually joining Masai and his team in uh, Rwanda in August to actually celebrate that and, uh, and get some inspiration from kids. I think the kids are coming together from 16 different countries uh, as part of the, the celebration of the 20th year. And so I'm yeah. thrilled to get to join and, uh, and be part of the programming. How did you initially get into the diversity, equity, and inclusion space? I know for the casual, that space kind of opened up after 2020, and that's when you kind of see more and more of that in uh, different organizations and businesses around the world. But you were doing this, you know, way prior to that. So how did you get in 
to the space to start with. And then on top of that, I always got to ask about the cast member stuff from Disney because uh, I'm sure there's some things and qualities that you learned from Disney <laughs> as I went through the training that helps you in your current work. I have to ask about that, bro. I got to. Uh, let, let, me start, let me start with Disney. You know what's interesting? Had you looked at my LinkedIn three weeks ago, that wasn't there. Mm. I put it there, and here's why. I'm doing a lot of advocacy work these days for frontline employees. And there's a lot of people who try to commit to doing work for frontline employees. And I'm talking about those in retail, those in manufacturing centers, those in distribution centers, those in data centers. Uh, companies across the board, whether Google, Snapchat, Nike, Adidas, uh, Puma, Under Armour, any, any sports business and apparel company, uh, any big tech company that has a data center, the majority of their diverse representation and particularly black representation is yeah. in the frontline worker frontline, population. For sure. Uh, you want you want to figure out how to fix your diversity representation challenges, create better systems for corporate and professional mobility from right. those spaces into your corporate environments. And so I've been evangelizing this for years. And mm. I was doing a keynote for the Retail Council of Canada uh, in Toronto, actually, three weeks ago. And as I'm about to go on stage, I'm looking at my content and I felt like a poser. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the concept of authenticity. And for me, I'm like, who am I and who are all of us in this audience to sit here in what can be termed as an echo chamber talking about what we need to do to support frontline teammates when I'm not acknowledging my own experience of being mm -hmm. a frontline worker and talking about what's important to me? Uh, that was one of the best jobs I ever had. <laughs> and the Catherine at Disney, I worked at Disney retail stores in Hawaii and in Houston uh, at the Galleria. And it was dope. Like, I tell people, I learned so much in that experience, and it's really three things stand out for me. Number one, the brand is incredible. Yeah. And the brand is one that it learns from itself, and it recognizes it, it, its, its previous transgressions, and it actively works to fix that, primarily in its content. And, and I think that's so inspiring. Two is you learn a lot by working in a retail environment and the grind and hustle of what it is and the narrative with which you're selling and serving. Uh, three parents are far worse in that environment than the children. <laughs> <laughs> not a day went by, not a day went by that my patience was tested by me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Big so, ass kids. And this so is before I, the new Little Mermaid too. This is this, you know. <laughs> Exactly. And so that, that, was, that was very interesting for me. Uh, but, but you know, I would say it definitely marked part of my foray into the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Because yeah. even as a retail team at Disney, I could see some of the work that the organization was doing around DEI. Mm -hmm. And I was incredibly inspired by it. Um, and then, you know, obviously, throughout my periods of academic education, I didn't realize, and it wasn't termed as DEI, right. but all of it was equipping me to understand how to lead global diversity. My first official DEI role, though, was when I went to Google. And so I was originally brought into Google under a, a brand new program they had built actually called the Channel Specialist Program, which is aimed at think, uh, rethinking uh, strategic approaches for talent acquisition. And very quickly into my time there, my vertical ended up being diversity recruitment. And we started to do some work in diversity recruitment and diversity talent management. And I fell in love with the space. And so I was doing a ton of work around uh, women in engineering, military veterans in the telecommunication space with the Google Fiber Project. Uh, and then obviously work around black engineers and diversifying pipelines for that space. Uh, they actually sent me as well as an expat to Sao Paulo, Brazil, 
where I helped them build out their approach for uh, women in engineering in Brazil. And, and that was that was game changing for me, because when you go to a region where what is considered a black identity is so different than mm -hmm. what it is here in the U.S., you learn uh, two things. One, about the fact that like this, this anti-blackness movement and anti-black perspectives and anti-black racism are not just a U.S. based concept. It's a global ideology. And while it looks different in different spaces, it is. And then two, we have to understand as we challenge our own perspectives of not being a monolith, people that look like all of us may not be termed as black in spaces like Brazil, part of the Caribbean, et cetera. And so how we think about solidarity, even in communities and spaces where we exist, we got to challenge colorism because it is a problem amongst the black communities in America, as well as various parts of the world. Damn. That's tough. And I mean, just to kind of progress in that nature, right? So, so you started off in that and you're seeing these, you know, these different changes, right? How do you, there's just so many layers <laughs> that you could touch just with, with the, you know, the and I, right? And like, you know, during this George Floyd time, it was really pushed by like a lot of the people to say, you know, you need to come as your authentic self. Cause you said you're really preaching you're and you're in authentic authenticity. That's they say it, <laughs> but they don't want EJ <laughs> to come into work. <laughs> you know, that like there's a what you say there's like a five o'clock EJ and then there's a corporate EJ, right? So yep. how do you balance that or because part of it is educating like you know the staff and the you know, whether they're frontline or you know, anybody in, in middle management, whatever, how do I come to be my full self and to feel accepted to make it and not having to worry about code switching, right? Or the trauma of, you know, hell, your hair, right? Yep. yep. How do you yep. come in to represent, you know, your hair? And like, you know, I haven't had, you know, that, but I like, I remember from where it's like only a fade or like, you know, a, a clean cut was, you know, you couldn't come into corporate America with dreads, right? Yep. 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 So how do you tackle? I mean, that was a lot, but like just kind of un uncuffing some of those layers and how do yep. you, how do you kind of educate and helping people through that? A lot, a lot to unpack in that question. You know, I'll start with a couple of areas. Um, I have said on many a panels, authenticity for me is not bringing your full self to work. I disagree with that concept. I think it is setting people up for failure when you argue that to be true. Uh, mm -hmm. Listen, guys, my whole self does not belong in anybody's corporate environment <laughs> at all. At all. <laughs> so I decide... <laughs> and, 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 and part of it is a protection of my own mental health. I decide right. what I'm going to give to you. And I set standards and parameters around that so that I can set my own boundaries for engagement mm. in the workplace. Mm. Authenticity is the defining of what values matter and are significant to you. Understanding how those values align with the workplace and being unwilling and unwavering to move against your values in any moment in time. And that is how I show up. And until nice. those values are challenged, we're good. That is my authentic self that I want to bring into the space. I want to talk about this concept of code switching, EJ, because I think that we have come to find and believe that the term code switching is so pejorative, pejorative, when the reality is we all code switch anyway. Code switching does not have to be inherently bad. The way I talk to my siblings and the way I would talk to y'all, particularly if we were not on a recorded line, is 
It's different than how I talk to my mom. We right. Switch. Especially in black communities, we talk differently to our peers and our colleagues versus how we talk to our elders because of the, the respect exactly. that we have been so taught to position to them. I think that the term code switching, when used in such a negative sense, actually boxes us back into these monolithic perspectives. It makes us believe that we have to follow, know, or only operate in a certain code. Listen, I code switch on almost every panel, every public discourse that I give. It doesn't make me any less authentic and it doesn't make me any less consistent, but here's what it is. The language that I'm using, if I know that I'm in a very mixed audience and I'm in an audience of different racial identities, sexual orientations, gender identities, religious identities, it has to be using a language that speaks to the masses, that speaks mm -hmm. to a mass population where everybody can understand it. It's based on the idea of equity. I have to recognize that we are all coming from different starting points. And so for my communication to not be exclusionary to one person, population, or another, I may have to code switch when the reality of the codes that I normally use are that of like a chill Southern black man. But I recognize that the language and vernacular that I might use in that space may not be understood by others that are a part of that audience. And so right. I have to ask, do I want to show up and use the language that I want to use, or do I want to get a message across that is not just communicated, but comprehended? And there's a big difference. And that's back to your like debating and speaking, right? Like yeah. knowing your audience, right? Like if, if I want to, you know, reach someone, I have to come to where they are, right? Like yeah. not downplaying, but just, you know, no one wants to be talked over their head, right? No yeah. one wants to feel dumb. So like, no, that's, yeah. that's definitely perspective. On the hair thing, EJ, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. <laughs> I oh, I laugh. I laugh. I laugh, especially during June, because everybody comes up to me and they're like, I love your pride hair. And I'm like, I look like this in November. <laughs> so, but thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, for those on the call, you probably can't see my forehead on this video, but like, it's like a full rainbow. It's like 40 inch locks. Uh, my hair is resistance. It is, you know, when I did my hair in black cornrows originally and then eventually changed to, to rainbow locks, I remember having a conversation at my house with my siblings. And it's so funny because they had staged like this whole intervention that they didn't tell me about. They're both older than me. And uh, and they have my best interest at heart. I love them. They're my besties. And, you know, they had had these conversations on the side. And they're like, okay, uh -huh. you go for this one, Megan, because, you know, you can butter him up. And then my older brother, Sean, is like, he gonna come in with the heel and be like, you know, you're corporate and you, you're corporate executive and you got this now. And so they did it. And I sat there and listened, which is out of character for me. Um, <laughs> I sat and I listened. And then I said, listen, let me educate you about something. And I told them about the Crown Act. And they weren't super familiar with it. The Crown Act is a piece of legislation that has been endorsed and sponsored by a number of uh, amazing corporations like Dove that aims to find freedom, equity, and equality with how we wear our hair. The reality is, in more than 20 states in the United States, you can still be fired on how you wear your hair. Mm. Hair discrimination. And yet, over the last several years, courts, state and federal, refuse to hear cases connected to it. They always find a reason to either dismiss it, throw it out, or not hear it at all. And the Crown Act as a piece of legislation did not pass when it was last put up to Congress last year. The Crown Act would have highlighted the connection between 
care discrimination and racial discrimination. Under the 14th Amendment, which argues equal protection under the law and additional both amendments and clarifying policy that talks about equal protection through the lens of employment, mm -hmm. hair is a part of the person. And hair is so cultural to black communities. All, far back from the moment where we were brought over here unwillingly and against our own devices when we had this loss of autonomy. Hair has represented the essence of who we are. It is how we show our creativity. It is how we show our love and light throughout the 60s with the beautiful afros of, of folks like Angela Davis. It represented resistance. To argue that hair is not connected to race, it's a flaw or fallacy at best and mm -hmm. a lie or an untold perspective at worst. And so for me, when we talk about this concept of hair, Standards of acceptability for hair are what is deemed as a professional hairstyle are ones that typically only align to standards of white beauty. And this is why Black women have for years permed their hair, chemically straightening it and causing so much harm and damage to their bodies. It is why Black girls don't grow up feeling beautiful because they're never shown images of natural hair or locks that are deemed as gorgeous or pretty. And even in our own community, we demonize folks based off of how their hair looks and what their hair represents. I highlighted to my siblings that the Crown Act is why I made the decision to wear my hair like this at a Fortune 100 company. That's because cool. I wanted to be a corporate executive that all, through my LinkedIn, through my life, through my platform, through every panel, discourse, et cetera, that I set off for Nike, the reality was my hair is a part of me and the essence of my identity. It is a defining dimension of me, but it does not define me. And I will tell you guys, I see it play out in owning my own company, and, and I, I'm on two to four panels a week. I see the perspective every time. When I go on stage, when I'm introduced to go out there, and I have my lavalier mic on, or I'm about to go sit in the panel, I see how people look at me. I see the imagery that, that they see on stage. And it, it is, part of it is surprise and shock. Part of it, I feel, is the sowing of seeds of doubt. I open my mouth, though, and they realize, wow, this person is actually an academic expert in these topics and has deep professional experience in it. I'm going to listen. The reality is suspend judgment the moment I get out there mm -hmm. and recognize that my hair represents the beauty of resistance where this rainbow represents the essence of a part of my community that fought for rights and freedoms, starting here in, in New York City at Stonewall. And the other half represents the locks that represent the fight for freedom for black communities for so many years that have been donned by amazing folks like Bob Marley, Whoopi Goldberg, and so many others. That's what it represents to me. That's what's up. Love it. So for, for, from a, from, from somebody from 40 foot or 40 inch locks to a brother with no hair, did you see the movie air? I did. I did. I loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Was it was it uh, accurate in your and in, in, in what you feel? Because you know how like the the movies have that yeah, they do the they create the creativity or whatever what they call it. <laughs> I, I, I think any piece of content that comes from Hollywood is going to take a bit of creative freedom <laughs> and creative independence. I will say that um, one of the things that I love though is that they leverage this very powerful narrative and the positioning of the incomparable Viola Davis. She is one of my top favorite actresses ever. Um, they were able to show a new perspective on representation 
right. and the power of the black woman as a negotiator, as a businesswoman, yeah. as a highly skilled leader, as someone independent in her own right and willing to challenge the status quo. And, you know, I'll be at if the exact words were used or not. I'll be at the timeline, etc. I respect any creative mm-hmm. freedom that was used to tell that story in such a powerful and productive manner. Um, I, I love seeing Chris Tucker uh, play Howard <laughs> White. Uh, I had the opportunity to get to know and work with H during my time and tenure at Nike. Uh, and I think that was a very accurate representation of how incredible yeah, he that's is. Good. Oh, that's good. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, this is what we call quick hits, man. This is kind of um, MH ready for your quick hits. Yeah, Jarv, just some quick get to know you questions. Kind of the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, first time, if ever, you've been starstruck. Oh my God, uh, Janet Jackson. This happened uh, last year. I I saw Janet up close and personal. We got to have very deep conversations. I, I adore her. I love her. <laughs> I love how she has used her platform for years. Completely starstruck. Okay. Houston. Uh, oh, you already went to your barbecue, but uh, I guess what is your top? Shout out to your top barbecue place in Houston. You know, actually, I'm, I'm going to switch up on that because uh, people in Houston – Got to go to Frenchie's Chicken. It's the best fried chicken. Out okay. Hands okay. down. If I had to pick a barbecue place, so I'm going to go with Ray's Barbecue. Okay. Uh, the Wood or Loving Basketball? Oh, Loving Basketball all day, every day. <laughs> <laughs> Questionable, but I'm with you. Listen. Uh, listen. <laughs> don't do that. It's, it's his quick hits. Don't. That's how you always <laughs> open it up. Stop that. Do yeah, it. I, I, I messed you up. Do that all <laughs> My bad. And everybody from Houston, okay, I'm going to the next question. Everybody from Houston, still tipping. Paul Wall, Mike Jones, Slim Thug, who got the coldest verse on there? Uh, I mean, I want them all. I would say <laughs> uh, probably Slim Thug. Okay. Top three Nikes, uh, shoe game. What's your top three? Can I include Jordan and Converse? Yeah, for sure. Go ahead. Perfect. Uh, <laughs> it's a fair question. Uh, Zoom Freak One, Giannis's first shoe, which gave a nod to coming to America. Uh-huh. Dope sneaker. Uh, I loved Converse did a collab with one of my favorite cartoons ever, Tom and Jerry. So my Tom and Jerry high top uh, Chuck Taylors. And then from the Jordan brand side, you know, I really love the AJ2 J Balvin's, uh, the blue cloud ones that have uh, the, the, the light on the front. Okay. And then you are a world traveler, so cuisine. Give me your top three cuisines from the country that uh, I need to check out. Yo, feijoada in Brazil. It's like black beans, rice, and then they put a a beef, meat base in there. You got to have, oh, donor kebabs in, in Istanbul, Turkey. Oh, I've, I've, I've had it, brother. I've been, in, yeah. I've been, that's one place I'm, I, I'm riding with you. Yeah. I'm with it's, you. It's, it's everything. Yeah. It's everything. I'm with you. Huge okay. Fan. And then my favorite country to eat in is Japan. You've got to have some Kobe beef in Tokyo. Any sushi restaurant you go to, oh, don't matter. Don't matter what it looks like. Fire. Don't matter what it is. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Okay. I have eaten at some of the most high end sushi spots in Tokyo. Fabulous. And I have eaten at places that you probably like, okay. Yeah. Ooh. That's so 
That's the homeland. I, I, I was born in Tokyo, so I got to go back. I don't. I don't remember anything about it. Oh, that's it. dope. But, uh, yeah, I go. I go, go, I go to Japan once a year. It is. Really? It is incredible. And you know, race relations, particularly for Black communities throughout um, much of the Asian continent, uh, there's a lot of literature that's been written about it. There's a lot of work in progress that needs to happen, largely rooted through the lens of representation. But I always feel so respected when I go to Japan mm. and, and the culture feels so deeply connected and engaging. And so yeah, they love I our find, culture, right? They really yep. love our, our culture, you yep. know, with the music, fashion and everything. So it's like, that's a respect kind of thing from it. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's interesting, you know, go, go back and look at some of her work. Uh, Megan the stallion was over there a couple of, a uh, couple of months back and Meg loves Japanese culture as well. And just to see this interchange uh, of community, what I've always loved is I feel like Japanese communities, both Japanese Americans and in, in Japan proper, they they assess and take our culture with such respect. And I don't mean take as in like take, like they consume it, they mm-hmm. celebrate it. And, and there's so much beauty in that. In a world where black culture is often vultured, exploited and appropriated, I, I, I've greatly appreciated that. Mm. Yes, sir, EJ. All right, I got a couple for you. You mentioned cartoons, so since you said Tom and Jerry, did you ever get into Boondocks? I watched a couple of episodes of Boondocks. You know, I really struggle with animation that <laughs> is a bit racy. Okay, I still watch it sometimes. Like I'm uh-huh. a big Family Guy fan, but like animation that's racy. Uh, we listen. I'm I'm getting up there in age, and my siblings are older than than me. We cannot watch The Simpsons in my mother's house. Correct. Like, Likewise. oh yeah, we we were raised in an environment where like animation and cartoons hey. are what they are. Uh-huh. You can watch that, and it's still like it still plays out to me. So like something like Boondocks, like I saw a couple of episodes. I think it's hilarious. Uh, but but I always hear my mom in the background. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and uh, so for me. You're you're avid karaoke. You're, you know, you you definitely put that out there. So you know, going to uh, Japan once a year. So I know they have that there. What is your go-to karaoke song or karaoke? <laughs> yes, may she rest in peace. I literally took two days of bereavement leave two weeks ago. Uh, I am the biggest Tina Turner fan. So I, <laughs> so I, I know, I'm, I'm serious. <laughs> I actually have like one of the little-known facts about me. I posted on Instagram, so I guess it's not that little-known anymore. Um, I have a probably like a one and a half foot tattoo of Tina Turner on my leg. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan. And yeah. so my uh, my go to karaoke song is Proud Mary by Tina Turner. There it is. <laughs> on tables. <laughs> there it is. Have you seen me out before? No, I, 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 have, I have not. <laughs> I have not. Oh. It is a common theme with that song that folks there like that song. There's a There's a common theme there. Awesome. So, hey, we want to jump into the winner's circle, right? This is where we talk your platform and, you know, just share more of the amazing things you're doing and the things that are to come, right? So, I mean, we have to start, man. You're the founder and CEO of the Rainbow Disruption. So where did that come from? Why is that needed? And then, like, just kind of give our listeners, you know, those kind of foundational things, and we'll probably ask some more questions off of that. I swear it's not just a justification for my hair. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not a bad thing. Okay. You know, as I was naming the company, I thought about the various uh, epoch moments that rainbows have appeared in my life. And there were really three. I remember growing up as a child and seeing uh, it rains uh, off and on quite a bit in Houston. 
uh, and sing rainbows as uh, a beautiful calm after the storm. And so it's always had this calming effect and calming impact on me. Uh, and you just, even amidst a storm or the number of hurricanes that we had in Houston, it felt like closure. A rainbow always feels like closure for people. And it, it's, it's gorgeous. It's celebratory. The other piece, if you shine a light through a prism, it emits a rainbow. I want to be that light for organizations where they have the skills and capabilities as that prism, but are unclear on how to shine the light of their teammates through. And so that's the role that I plan to play there. And so that was the, the second big uh, impact of rainbows for me. And that was from third grade when I first started studying like prisms and mirrors, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The final piece is connected to my queer identity. The rainbow has forever represented the resistance and the liberation that is so necessary about it. You know, I am very proud of all elements uh, of my identity. And what I think is often lost is while we see imagery these days of the rainbow is often positioned next to bodies that don't look like mine. It is not that of Black queer men. And our stories are so often lost and are not told. When the reality is the resistance movement that ultimately drove the impact of pride a couple of miles from where I am right now at the Stonewall Inn was led by trans women and drag queens, particularly a black trans woman named Marsha P. Johnson and then Sylvia Rivera. We led this, the, the women's movement, the women's march led by black women, the Me Too movement led by black women. We have been on the front lines of almost every movement in American history and yet the beauty of the, the rainbow that we bring to the table has often not been exposed. And so I name my company through that lens because there is such power and beauty within what rainbows are. But when you think about its ability to disrupt how people engage and interact, it means that we're going to come in and affect your organization in a way that feels welcoming, engaged, connected, and aligned around coalition building. But we go and break some stuff along the way together because that's how we rebuild for progress so how's a rainbow disruptive i'm sorry yeah. I mentioned. No, 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 was, go ahead yeah how's a rainbow disruptive right like that's not what you know immediately comes to mind right so yep. yeah please educate when you guys see the pride flag what does it mean to you that's a great question so the pride it doesn't mean it doesn't it doesn't resonate anything in me, right? Like, I think it signifies, I, I think it's like, you know, seeing any kind of representation or logo, right? Like, I, that is a logo, right, for, yep. for, the, for your movement, right? So that's what it looks like, right? That's yep. what I think of it, but I don't think of it as being disruptive, right? I don't know. People put it in parades, and they connote it as celebration. For me, that flag, particularly when it's the Philly flag, where it has those black and brown stripes used to specifically represent black and brown identities, when it's cross-colored to have that beautiful white, blue, and pink to represent transgender and non-binary movements, uh, communities rather, as part of the movement, the rainbow, for me, represents resistance. It represents disruption. The rainbow was used as a means for disrupting police brutality against Black and brown queer POC uh, at the Stonewall riots, 
it was used as a means to say what we will and won't stand for and our push in our fight for freedom. And so the goal of defining a rainbow as disruptive is this idea that we have managed to take this beautiful spectrum of colors that so many people view with surprise and celebration and delight and argue that you see it one way and through one dimension, but the reality of those who to which it stands for and what it represents is a movement far different. And this is where organizations need to get to, is mm. you can do all this work connected to diversity, equity, and inclusion, but are you actually talking to your Black consumers and your Black employees? Are you actually talking to your queer consumer and your queer employees? Because what you think is important to us and what you think resonates for us and what you think is a product created in celebration for us is something so different and created in resistance, challenge, and the need to think differently about perspective. That's the essence of how we argue the rainbow disruption. When you look at an organization from the DNI kind of lens, there's so many ways that you can kind of start and evaluate somewhere. Where's kind of where you guys start? Where do, where do you start when you evaluate those organizations of ways to improve? It's such a great question. You know, I think far too often organizations, they start within HR. And that's not mm -hmm. a problem. Getting your people and culture strategy and team and talent strategies down is great. But hiring, promotion, retention, learning and development and compensation, that's only one portion of it. Right. Where organizations really struggle is when there's incongruence between employee experience and consumer experience. And mm -hmm. so we take a look at the full 360 perspective of the organization to say, how is your product and particularly your approach to product development and new product development aligned to your approach to brand and marketing in terms of its connection to the consumer and the narrative that you're seeking to tell there? And then how does that align and apply to the work that you're doing with employees? We can't segment out one over the other. Uh, at times, you know, we'll decide where we'll start certain portions of our work, but we have to look at all of those different dimensions because if we make incredible progress on our ability to engage our consumers, for example, and we do really great work in the space of multicultural marketing, and yet our house is not in order internally for our employees, it's a huge issue. Here's an example. I see a lot of organizations right now that are, are highlighting advocacy and support for LGBTQ plus communities, and yet they don't have a single gender neutral bathroom in their yeah. workplace. They don't have benefits that are gender affirming or that support either transgender or non-binary employees or the parents of transgender or non-binary kids. Yeah. Your, your outside's not match your inside. And so we have to think about this more holistically in what we say and how we position our connection to our consumers with who we are and what we do internally within our company. How do you um, choose um, a company, right? Like to work with a company because all like it's especially building a new business, right? Let's talk yep. about the entrepreneurial layer, right? Like you got to keep the lights on, you know, fun, like you're not getting that regular paycheck, right? Yep. How do you look at a company to make sure that it's the right company for you to work with, you know, versus chasing that bad? It's a good question. I don't work with everybody. Yeah. I don't work with everybody. I get a number of emails or LinkedIn messages and, you know, I may connect with the people or teams or if I read in the press what, what's happening with your organization, in some cases, I will run to challenges and problems that have arisen with companies. It's kind of like a rainbow Olivia Pope. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm fine with navigating the tough challenges that companies face. Right. But you, you will not bring me in to develop a band-aid solution for your organization. 
or the check the box kind of not fully engaged type situation, right? And so as organizations are connecting with me or, you know, we're going through the first iteration of the process, I'm also very much interviewing them. And I will tell you one of the most critical pieces that is a clear indicator, EJ, for a brand's commitment is how you talk to me or ask me about my approach to compensation or pricing. Okay. Because if I, you know, this work cannot be approached on the cheap. I'm going to be very candid. Like, cheap, cheap. Uh, it's not a cheap problem. Mm-hmm. It's not a cheap problem. You are literally it's not losing. An easy, quick solution either. No. You're, right. you're, you're losing consumer engagement or employee engagement in one case or another because of your failure to demonstrate and foster real equitable solutions and equitable outcomes. So why do you ever believe that it's appropriate to bring in an expert from the outside and I'm comfortable with the negotiation in any environment. That's not the issue. But to negotiate me or attempt to negotiate me mm-hmm. to a total that is is one either unreasonable or disrespectful. Unsafe. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. That's like disrespectful and that doesn't give due consideration to mm-hmm. the work that a person has done. It poses a problem. Because you reached out and you engaged me for a reason. You know the value that my firm will offer to your organization. You know what it means when we say that your brand is working with my organization to drive your work. You know what that means. And you know the value and weight that it has. And so it's disrespectful to then try to hold out. And if your organization has not allocated enough budget to support this work, you're not in a space of organizational readiness then to do the work. And so that that is undoubtedly one filter that I look at and that I think about. And then two is how engaged are our senior leaders beyond just the CHRO in the conversations with me? Like I expect to spend time with organizations that I work with, with the chief marketing officer, with the chief product officer, and with the CEO. Because all of you all will have to play a part in real systemic advancement of this work. Mm. How do you show um, the bottom line, right? I think that's really important when you're talking about like, yeah, we really want to do these things, but how it's affecting our bottom line. And you hear the early stats like, oh, diverse, you know, you know, employment fosters, you know, creativity and blah, blah, blah. But how are the other like bottom line driven things kind of, you know, put out there? Is that something, you know, in your 360 evaluation that you kind of make sure you focus on and, and provide that return? Of course. You know, I'll tell you my philosophy is twofold. One. I think a lot of DEI practitioners will tell you that they exist in this work to change hearts and minds. I do not. <laughs> like, I'm serious. Where, where your heart and mind exist when you're in your household, I hope that the work that we do when I'm partnering with your company in, inspires you or encourages you to think differently about how you mm-hmm. view the world. But that's actually not my goal. My goal is to ensure that your mindset and your behavior or your actions when you're in this workplace, so when you cross the threshold of that physical building or when you log on to that Zoom, Microsoft Teams, or WebEx call, is aligned to the values that this company believes are appropriate for how people connect with and interact with one another. That is my job. It is not to force an agenda or perspective on you. And I think that's really important that we call it out because Mm -hmm. part of the evangelism that's being positioned right now is that, oh, DEI is is about forcing a perspective or forcing an agenda on someone else. That's not the case. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. The second part of my job is I am a business leader. I am not a moral authority. I'm a business leader who happens to know how to leverage 
diversity, equity, and inclusion to achieve or drive business results for an organization. And so when we talk about measurability for the bottom line, EJ, is where organizations fail. They look for some silver bullet that says, we introduced DEI and this is exactly how our bottom line changed. They shift their entire measurement platform and perspective that they use. Listen, stop positioning it as multicultural marketing. Just call it marketing and yeah. change who uh, you're featuring in the ads and campaigns that you're running. Change where you're distributing the resources and how they're positioned. Change what products you're merchandising on the basis of geographic locale to appeal to communities that are in that geography or region. Change where the money exists within your financial holdings to put them in black banks to drive and foster greater investment that facilitates better impact in the local community layer. When you ask how I measure the bottom line, it is not changing traditional approaches to business operations. It is integrating and embedding this work into that. If you start creating different standards for how you measure revenue generation or profitability specifically on the basis of DEI, uh -huh. now it becomes an afterthought. And what happens is in a world of economic volatility, like the potential impending recession that we were experiencing a couple of months ago, you end up in this trade-off scenario where people are like, we got economic headwinds coming. We're going to reduce the, the impact and investment that we're making in DEI. It's like, yeah, because you position it as a separate program. And as an mm -hmm. afterthought and as an add-on to the work, whereas if you truly embed it, it becomes part of your work and practice. And so your question then becomes, how do I shift and adjust marketing spend, period, to account for economic headwinds? Not where you see a reduction in one budget and not in the other. That's phenomenal. I'm interested to hear your, because you said the power of sports early on, and we all know we're here because of sport. The NBA, the NFL, and they've progressively um, done some different things in the in the space. Where do you see the future of, I guess those are two of our top kind of sports organizations in this country. Where do you see the future? I think we got to learn from each other's experiences more. And I mm -hmm. get it. The organizational structures, particularly around ownership and management and leadership, looks different uh, across the board and in who has power in certain spaces to make right. certain decisions on the ownership versus league and federation side. But I still think that there are themes that come to life with everything that we do in these various in, uh, leagues and federations that we have to learn more from others' successes, but also others' failures and mistakes so that we can do things a bit better. We also need to coalition build. You know, part of why I was excited to receive the invitation from you guys to join this podcast is because when we talk about this concept of Blacks in sports, we need to align on the black people that are doing this from a product and merch standpoint at Nike, Adidas, Puma, Under Armour, Lululemon, and so much more with the folks that are doing it at teams and leagues like the NFL, NBA, NHL, as well as those that are doing it with the tennis association, et cetera, to say our communities have built the essence of what sport and sport culture partially in America, but certainly Driven around it. the world looks like. <laughs> undoubtedly yes. around the world and I'll be at a couple of specific sports Paris 2024 will be filled with black identities from the US right. from Canada from Jamaica from France from the UK there's such power in that black culture has inspired the essence of how we understand sports and so my hope is that we start to learn from others examples we focus on the importance of representation and 
And I specifically draw a distinction between misrepresentation and representation because uh, I, I live and breathe by the Zora Neale Hurston quote that all skin folk ain't kin folk. And so it's not just about you putting a black leader in a head coach role. It's not about you putting a black leader <laughs> in a GM job. It needs to be one that's going to focus on developing and elevating uh, underrepresented communities. I love it, man. That's good all right. Stuff. So a couple of things um, just to talk about future things, right? So, when is the TED Talk dropping, right? Like, I mean, I mean, I know you got a lot going on, but like, when's a TED Talk or a book or like, so, I mean, yeah, I know you need sure. to, when, when is that coming? <laughs> I will say this for, for listeners and for you all, if you are not already following me on LinkedIn, uh, follow me on LinkedIn uh, over the next two weeks, there's going to be three really exciting announcements of what's happening next for me and the Rainbow Disruption. <laughs> <laughs> okay that, that's a little teaser so definitely follow that um anything else as far as about the disruptive right like you have multiple categories in that space and, and how you're reaching out is there anything else that you would want to share just about the organization that our listeners should hear yeah you know i think we are really double downing on our impact in sport uh sport culture has a lot of work to do and a mm -hmm. lot of improvement to make across every dimension of diversity, whether it's gender identity, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, religion, when it plays out in sport, it can be incredible. It, it can be a beautiful showcasing of the power and potential of sport. But we also see many of those negative isms and phobias that are experienced uh, in sport. You know, I desire to see a world where professional athletes, the NFL and the NBA can come out and it not be national news. When we celebrate right? and recognize, uh, you know, what that representation means in sport, but where it's no longer such an anomaly. Because look at almost every instance in those leagues where it happens. It either happens in retirement or the player comes out and that ends up being their last season or they play one or two more seasons with those teams. Why does that happen? So we'll be doing a lot more work in the sports industry across different leagues, across different teams, across different federations to try to create safer spaces, not just for the employees that work for these organizations, but for the players, because they represent such an important role in space to where, you know, when you go to a pride night at an NBA game, it shouldn't feel trite. It shouldn't feel stereotypical. It should feel like a moment of celebration where these players are not so concerned about will people think this or have to, to subscribe to association-based covering to not want to be associated with the community, but they're just there because they feel like they have to be, to an actual moment where they're celebrating. They get it. They understand that they have uh, LGBTQ plus fans that support them as well and that wear their jerseys and that are a part of the impact of their careers and where we see this collective solidarity happen uh, in a way that's so meaningful. Furthermore, I'm a huge advocate and staunch supporter of the WNBA. I love the work that the organization has done over the last several years under uh, Kathy Engelbert's leadership. And I'm thrilled to see what continued efforts around not only team expansion looks like, but as we drive even further toward equity on topics like compensation, uh, player endorsement, and broadcasting for these amazing women continues to happen. And with that in sport, I mean, that kind of even builds more on to what we talked about earlier. They're frontline employees, right? Like yeah. to, to example, right? Because they're not ownership, right? Yep. So 
no, that's definitely dope to hear. All right, this is more of a fan thing kind of situation. Just want to know, did you work at all with the Kaepernick situation, right? Like he's the only person that has a shoe deal that's no longer in the sport. And you're talking about like diversity or just doing something different. And we all know what he stood for or kneeled for, however you want to say it. Um, did you get a chance to help give any input on that or, or, or work on that project at all? So this will actually be an incredible full circle conversation. So I have admired Cap for many years. And, you know, a lot of uh, Nike's work with Cap was around the 2016 and 17 period. So that was actually right before I joined the company. And it was actually part of the reason I chose to go to Nike. Oh, wow. Was because okay. I was so inspired by the work that I had seen done with Cap. Uh, from that time, you know, I have had the opportunity to work uh, tangentially with marketing teams on some of the work to support uh, not only the jersey release, but some of the footwear work that we did, and of course, some of the great brand campaigns. Uh, most of my directed specific work, though, uh, was with Serena's team and LeBron's team. And we got to build some amazing work, like the Serena Williams design crew directly alongside her. And she's just absolutely incredible and so inspiring, uh, one of my absolute heroes. And then our continued investment work um, with LeBron around how we think about talent development and engagement in our organization. But I call it a full circle moment because because of the pandemic, I never had the opportunity to meet Cap, actually. And in November of 2022, I publicly announced that I was leaving Nike. And the first place that I did it was actually on stage at the Giants of Africa during my keynote speech um, in, in front of uh, Masai and Masai's team. I had prepped for my speech for about three weeks. And the point of the speech was to talk about how when brands do good work and focus on purpose, what impact do they have? I was talking about how Nike has been able to lead in this space and how I will carry that same mission forward with the rainbow disruption. I started my speech with uh, an incredible video, the Dream Crazy video from Colin, which was arguably one of the most significant pieces of sports content, in my opinion, in the world, uh, where, where he's highlighting his perspective and then it closes with that beautiful Nike sentiment around uh, Dream Crazy and what it means to have a crazy dream. I'm prepped and ready. I step outside, go and get mic'd up, go backstage. The announcer says, you know, next on the stage, Jarvis Sam, a newly announced CEO and founder of Rainbow Disruption. Video plays. I come on stage, sitting in the front row is Colin Kaepernick. Wow, let's Completely go. unplanned, completely unscripted. Uh, he has a great relationship with Masai, and so he joined the Giants of Africa event. And so we had the opportunity to catch up, talked about... Um, the inspiration that he provided for me throughout my working career at Nike, um, celebrating some of the great wins and successes that I positioned during my role as chief diversity officer with the organization. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was such an incredible and inspiring moment. And so I actually, I posted a photo on my LinkedIn, um, not LinkedIn, on my Instagram from uh, from November. And it, it undoubtedly is one of the most inspiring and empowering moments for me in life. That's what's up. So speaking on inspiring, because like we're being selfish, right? We do want to get you out. <laughs> we know it's late on the, on the East Coast with you. But so, so speaking of inspiring, this is the part of the show we call um, The Assist. Um, this is where you get to put your coaching hat on, your teaching hat on, and, you know, get to um, drop words to live by. So is there, you know, you gave us a great quote by Nelson Mandela. You know, if, if that's the quote you want to go out on, I definitely understand that. But is there another quote or maybe something you would tell your younger self for The Assist? You know, I live by uh, one key quote now, and it's why I established my business and the work that I do. It is by a 20th century theologian named Reinhold Nyberg. And what Nyberg argues is man's capacity for justice makes democracy possible. 
Man's inclination for injustice makes democracy necessary. And I love that quote because despite our best efforts, we are such a competitive population of people, especially in a deeply individualistic and capitalistic environment to where it's the current affirmative action debate that we see happening right now. People feel that the advancement of approaches to diversity, equity, and inclusion means that somebody else is losing something or that something is taken away from them. It also then inspires the age-old James Baldwin quote, which I think is so powerful, that when individuals have lived so heavily through the lens of privilege, equality feels like oppression. And it's such a powerful sentiment because no one is taking anything away from you. It's just the pie to which you have acquired and have been eating off of for years was based on an advantage that you did nothing to acquire. It's the essence of privilege. And so we're simply trying to create a level of equality on that playing field to ensure that others can also eat from that pie and relish in the beauty of its sweet complexity, sweet simplicity, and sweet delight. And so I say (laughs) that I would tell that to my younger self because whether it's Baldwin or Reinhold's quote, the democratization of experience for people is how you level playing fields. It is where I say I'm going to seek to understand the values are what you need to be successful, and I'm going to shell out resources to you to support that. And so we have to be willing to challenge our own inclination toward injustice in any capacity by understanding the impact of the democratization of process, policy, and practice. Let's go. All right, and I'll be remiss. So, you know, we're definitely recording this during Pride Month, man. So... What does that mean to you? Is it significant? You know, um, how do you celebrate? Got so far to go. Give, give, give me that. Uh, yeah, pr- pride means everything to me. But I think pride is really, you know, it's important that we acknowledge the history, as I mentioned before, that pride started as a resistance movement. But I think for LGBTQ plus people, we live these lives every day. And so while it's an incredible moment of celebration from June 1st to June 30th, this is where we have to be conscious of rainbow washing, for example, where companies are so willing to change their logo June 1st, but by 11.59.59 on June 30th, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I'm not asking you to keep it up all year, but what I am asking you to do is ensure that your actions in support and advocacy of my community exist longer term and that you think through this lens of Pride 365 where on an annual basis, we're finding ways to advocate for the right policies for us. This pride is particularly important to me though, I will tell you, because over the last several years, particularly since marriage equality, when when the US government said affirmatively that same-sex couples could be married in all 50 states, we have focused so much on the celebratory nature of pride. Mm -hmm. That is not the case right now, you all. Uh, the, The human rights campaign just declared last week a state of emergency for the LGBTQ plus community. Because our culture is under attack in so many ways. In states like Kentucky and Tennessee, public drag queen performances are attempting to be banned. In states like Texas and Florida, books about our history have literally been banned. Contracts connected to the ability to educate about DEI and about pride and rights advocacy are being banned. We are literally a community under attack. And yet if people only continue to think of us through the lens of the pride parades and the celebratory moments, my fear is that we will miss out on a very necessary point 
to ensure that we're able to protect the rights of people who are so vulnerable. And yet, at the same time, where I will close with on this sentiment is I understand the privilege that I hold as a cisgendered Black queer man. Because my brothers and sisters in this fight who identify as Black trans people, particularly Black trans women, they are under attack at a rate that no one is talking about. Last year, 38 Black trans women were murdered around this nation. No one knows their names. Why is that? Because we don't know their stories. No one is talking to them. And no one is talking about them. We view their lives as dispensable. We, we do not care enough to try to position protections from them. And that's just those that died through being brutally murdered by homicide. It doesn't account for the fact that the suicidality rate, suicidality being the likelihood that an individual contemplates or engages in death by suicide, has increased for Black youth by 37% since 2018. Why is that happening and no one is talking about it? And Black trans youth are the ones that are the most susceptible to it. So when you ask me what pride represents for me, I find these moments to celebrate and enjoy uh, the beauty of which my identity is and to listen to the music that has framed the reality of our lives. But I cannot celebrate when so many folks who have such a similar shared experience to me continue to suffer. Yes. Wow. I appreciate you sharing that. And that's important to hear, right? right? It definitely uh, reflects some things that, you know, that, that we didn't, you know, and it's, it's power in saying the name. Like we even learned that through kind of like the, you know, the, the murders of these cops. Right. So that carries on and, and we need to have those, those names heard because it's power. Like even in the African, like, you know, Salvona, like I see you, right. And, and being recognized and being enjoyed. So MH, I'm gonna turn it over to you for final thoughts, man. So we can get out of here. Yeah, man. No, uh, uh, beautiful. Um, just information. Just, I, I enjoyed the conversation from start to finish. So I, I really appreciate your time and, um, best of luck in all your future endeavors. What's, what's your social and information that everybody can, you know, kind of follow you and get in touch with you if need be. Yeah, hit me, uh, especially for professional updates, hit me at uh, Jarvis Sam on on LinkedIn. You, you can see my profile picture. It looks just like me. Uh, and then on Instagram, it's uh, at official Jarvis Sam. And then if you still use Facebook, it's just Jarvis Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually a very avid Facebook user. I'll be honest with y'all. I'm not going to BS. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Well, hey, it's been an absolute pleasure for to sure, have you, Jarvis. Sure. Thank you so, so much, man, for your time, the wisdom, you know, and, and, and just, just what you do and continue to do. Uh, we're going to be avid supporters, so we're going to make sure we put all of that contact info um, in the in our, in our the bio uh, of the show just so people can continue to connect and learn and, and you know, uh, make, make this world better. It, it takes all of us, right, to put in work. I also want to thank you, the listeners, for, um, for joining in. I hope you enjoyed this show. You know, we drop a new show every Thursday. Please, please, please subscribe to the YouTube channel because visual representation matters. All right. If you see it, you can be it. And then, you know, we're on everywhere that you can listen to a podcast. So definitely uh, subscribe and please, please, please be safe. Practice gratitude and know we're rooting for you. Screaming all us blacks got a sports and entertainment until we even. Assuming you're rooting for everybody that's black. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black. Yo. 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 Look. 
Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black, spam out to racks on handmade new rags. Assuming I'm rooting for everybody that's black, that's everybody from sports to college class to rap and battle.